Hello, and welcome to Dragon's Demise, a podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm joined, as always, by Greg. Hello. And today, we will be reviewing Sherwood's Legacy. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. Yeah, we're pretty excited. We finally had a chance to play Time Stories again. So uh, that was pretty great. We were playing through, I believe, the fourth official scenario, Under the Mask, which takes place uh, in ancient Egypt. We are investigating the theft of the burial mask of King Tut. So there's a lot of uh, intrigue that goes on around there. They introduce some new elements, including, I forget what the name of the thing is, but it's basically a, a tool that allows you to change receptacles, that is the people that you're occupying, during gameplay as opposed to in between runs. So you start the game as, say, for example, a priestess of Ra, and then, you know, when you encounter someone, a, a thief who's in prison, it'll have a thing at the bottom of their card that says, this person is a receptacle, and if you spend one charge, you can jump into them and get that character card instead. So that opened a lot of really interesting opportunities, and it also, I think, works better than the type of, of situation where you have lots of character cards at the beginning and just have to choose one of them and play through the whole game as that person, just because it allows you to adjust on the fly. So I, I really appreciated that. Though any receptacle that you've already used is no longer accessible afterwards, so you have to be very careful. You can't just like switch back and forth between two. You actually have to be wary of when you switch because you can't use the, the abilities, which came into play a few times for, for us. Yeah, yeah, it definitely did. There were some receptacles that we jumped into that were generally you know, stat-wise, worthless. But they had awesome, like, items that they came along with because when you jumped into a new body, you kept all your old items but then gained all of the new person's items as well. So you kind of, since you couldn't jump back into an old one, you had to balance this sort of like, okay, I'm going to jump into this receptacle to get the great items that they have, but then also we have to make sure that there's a plan later on for me to jump into a different one that I'm going to use to finish out the game because... Mine has terrible stats. Yeah. So it just continually impresses me how Time Stories is just a base for all these other things. It's every time we play it, there's something new, something different, and some different way of using these basic like rules. It's almost like an RPG where you have like the very basic rules. You think about Fate or something like that, which has extremely basic just how things are done. And like die rolls that can be used for just about anything, you know, success or failure kind of thing. And then you build anything you want off of it. And the more I play Time Stories, the more it seems to be that kind of a game. And I'm actually very curious to see how some of the fan-made scenarios would work. Because yeah, I'd be really too. curious to see how that, that would work and how they take advantage of these different abilities and different like, ways of using these tokens because everything for the most part is extremely basic and then they just modify it for each scenario and you can go anywhere in time you can go anywhere in space and it'll still work yeah it's very versatile I and mean, that's something that's really exciting to see and like you said i'm excited to check out some of the fan-made stuff eventually um, and just see what innovations other people can come up with because there's lots and lots of potential there. There's one thing that's really interesting because the meta game of this game has started to appear. You know, the the whole there is a story behind all of of us right. going into these different places and I'm not going to say any more than that, but it's there and it's a continuity between scenarios which actually makes it 
pretty good to go in order of when these came out because little by little you'll get trickles of information. Yeah, and that's a really smart decision on their part, you know, to kind of introduce not just a standalone games that don't suffer at all for having this overarching plot, but then also hints of, you know, a bigger picture behind the scenes. So that's really cool. And I'm excited to play the next one, Arctic Expedition, Endeavor. So, something like that. Something I, to that effect. It's it's in the Arctic. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Other than that, I also went to Game Night at Labyrinth last week and got to play a few other games. And normally I'm the one who brings all the games that you know are new or that people haven't heard of because at Gamers we don't often get new games and all that. And usually it's the games by request that people already know. Right. Whereas at Labyrinth, a lot of times you get to try some demo games. Some people like are bringing in games that they got while they were abroad and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I got to play one really interesting game, which was Role Player. Yeah, I've heard things about this. So this is a game about pretty much creating your character or your character sheet in an RPG. So it has a very interesting mechanic. It's all based on dice, but there's a lot of dice mitigation. So there's that. And so if you have someone who's not the biggest fan of just pure luck and rolling dice games, this will actually still be pretty fun because they're still able to actually plan for those kinds of things. Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, So to show how well that works, when I first played the game, my initial roll of eight dice that I got was nothing above a three. (laughs) And... Five, I believe, of the first die that I rolled were ones. Wow. That is a terrible character. It was absolutely horrible, yet I lost by three points. Okay. So you definitely, yeah, worked your way back into the running. Exactly. It's the kind of thing where the value on top of the die is useful in some ways, but then other things that you can do is that you can place them in certain spots, which will give you points. And then you also get equipment, which also gives you points. Hmm. So it's just like in D&D. Like sometimes you might have a much more powerful statted character but not have really crappy equipment. Or you have a character that has worse stats, but instead you took feats or something like that that gave you uh, more powers. Or uh, you find a magic sword that gives you something better. Mm-hmm. So it really does give you that feel. And it has almost three distinct goals that you're working on you're working on getting your stats to certain point values which gives you certain amounts of points Mm -hmm. so you know a stat that's uh, that you have to get to exactly 18 is going to give you four points and it'll tell you based on what class you've gotten what point values each stat is supposed to get to okay that makes sense but then if you have a stat that is supposed to be anywhere between 14 and 16 that's only going to give you one point but it's easier to do and so they have all those your background is interesting because that's placement of certain colored dice. So dice of different color are like the dice that are associated with that certain class. So for a paladin or a cleric, you have white dice. Oh, okay. For a wizard or a sorcerer, you have purple dice. Or blue dice, sorry. And, and because of that, they can be anywhere. But at the same time, you sometimes want the number on the die rather than the uh, the color and all that. Right. But you got to kind of make those trades and decide what's important. Exactly. And, and you have six different colors of die. And when you place them, uh, you, you can place them in certain spots. And if you fill the, the spots that are in your background with the dice of the right color, then you get extra points. 
Hmm. And then also depending on where your alignment is, because you get to draw an alignment as well. Of course you do. And depending on where you put it, it'll give you certain points. So it can give you negative points, it can give you positive points. Because alignment is how you use skills. What? Yeah. All right. This is starting to break the metaphor. A little bit. But it's the kind of thing where if you have a skill that's called like thievery or something, you go from, you have to go more chaotic in order to use that skill. Okay. All right. Or something like that. Or if you have uh, some other like altruistic or something like that skill, in order to use that, you need to go towards the good side or something like that. Okay. All right. And I could see how this would work. Yeah. And. You can't use the skill if you can't move yourself in that direction. So there's a little bit of that economy of moving yourself away and into those kinds of things. Sure. Okay. Kind of balancing. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'm, I was really excited to play it. Um, I'm sure we'll get to it before too long because it sounds like you are as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know you actually purchased it yes. the other day. I saw it over there. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure we'll get to that eventually. Yeah. Yeah, we also, we had a chance, last night we were over at a party. We had a chance to play... Some fun games. We played uh, Bards Dispense Profanity, which I think I've mentioned on here before. Yep. Uh, it's the Shakespearean-themed Cards Against Humanity, and that was a blast. Lots of lots of raunchy, poetic fun. Also, a couple of us were off in a corner playing Star Realms, doing our own thing, so that was fun for me. It's been a long time since I played Star Realms not on my uh, PC, so yep. that was pretty cool. Yeah, I got to play Santorini. I- uh, I got to play 10 Minutes to Kill. 10 Minutes to Kill. And also a round of Karmica. Okay, classic. Good stuff. So all a lot of fun. And yeah, that's what we've been playing. Let's rob from the rich and give to the listeners our review of Sherwood's Legacy. Yeah, so this is a game that brands itself as a tower defense board game. Which, as you heard last week, we were incredibly intrigued by. This sounds very unique. You know, we've loved Bloons and all those other really good tower defense games on our computers. And so we were like, oh, what's this going to be like? Yeah, let's try it out. Let's see how this whole thing works. And you have a few different kinds of tower defense games in general on PC. Uh, you know, all the Flash games that you've been playing forever. They're like the the fixed map ones, which you have to go around a route and that kind of stuff. And then you also have ones that you have to create almost the obstacles. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, okay, I wonder which one this is. And it turned out to be almost a combination of the two. Yeah, it was interesting. It's sort of, you know, when you play Sherwood's Legacy, you take on the role of the heroes of, you know, Robin Hood, the story. So you've got... Robin himself, Maid Marian, Friar Tuck, two characters whose names I don't recall, but I'm sure were in the original source material. Um, There was Little John, of course. Oh, yeah, Little John. Yeah, of course. Um, But yeah, so you take on the role of these heroes, and you have little stand-ins that represent yourself, and you're trying to prevent the armies of the king from moving into your village, where your villages are, where your buildings are, and destroying it. So in order to do this, you move your hero around to various tiles which you then reveal and they have certain features on them which can include uh, trees and so trees represent obstacles which you then are allowed to position the tile in such a way as to use the obstacles to create sort of lanes or, or specific channels that your enemies are allowed to pass through so in that sense it's kind of you know the former you've got this sort of fixed terrain after you revealed all the forests Um, And your enemies have to move through that. But then 
when you build the towers, which we'll you know get into the specifics of it later, you do that on unoccupied terrain. So terrain that would otherwise be moved through. So it's kind of a combination of taking these existing lanes, these existing points of, of access, and blocking them off in strategic ways so that your enemies have to move in the direction that you want, and you can pick them off one by one. Yeah, and first of all, your heroes can also only move through those lanes as well. Mm -hmm. And your heroes also have some special abilities. So each one has something slightly different. There's Robin, who can shoot uh, two people in one action rather than having to take multiple actions. This, you still have to use two arrows, but you can shoot more people with less effort, almost. Friar Tuck can actually buy things for other players, which no one else can do. So he can just be like, okay, I'm going to take this and distribute this. So he's more of a support character. Yeah, very standard support suite of skills. So each one has a slightly different taste, a little bit of a different flavor, and they're mostly pretty thematic. And oh, yeah. Yeah, they're definitely relevant. You know, they feel appropriate to, you know, the original characters. Obviously, Robin's an excellent archer. Little John has his, his quarterstaff, so he has essentially reach. Um, he can attack people from farther away than other people with regular melee weapons. So it definitely fits. You know, the characters feel appropriate to where they're at. Exactly. And this brings us to the other part of the game, which is the resource management. Because you actually do have resources in the game that you have to gather and then you can then use in the trading post in order to equip your people with, with certain items, get upgrades, get other things. So... Most of the characters start already with a weapon, so you don't really have to give them anything more, but a shield could be useful, for example. Fire Tuck is the one that does not have a weapon to begin with, and which that makes sense. They, he has a gold instead, but you know, if he's a friar, he's not really supposed to be armed and ready to fight. I mean, Fire Tuck was always not a very good friar, so... Yeah, you know, he wasn't the best, and he would, like, go off the handle a few times but at the same time he started off pretty all right I guess. that's fair you can actually as a player send villagers to different resource camps which are revealed on the terrain tiles it's another thing that you have to keep your eye out for to see you know you don't want to put a villager on a resource block that is literally right next to the spawn point of an enemy because that would just be you know death to the villagers Womp. You only have six of them, and if three of them die, you lose. So you have to make sure to keep them protected while they go out and gather resources. And that also takes a few turns. When you send them out, they get one resource on them default. And then each round, when it, when it ends, you add another one in the cleanup phase until a maximum of three. You can also call them back once they have these resources in order to put those resources in the storehouse and be able to use them. So it's that kind of thing where you have to like defend that area in order to actually keep them safe and get the resources that you need in order to play the rest of the game. One of the things that we notice is uh, wood is extremely important. Oh yeah. Because that is how you get arrows. And arrows are used not only by archers like Robin, but also by watchtowers. Yeah. So each watchtower would you build, again, using those resources. I believe each watchtower is constructed from one wood and one metal. It has to have arrows in its corresponding storeroom. 
Um, there's a green tower and a purple tower, and each one has a storeroom that corresponds to it, in order to fire, and they can hold up to six arrows at a time. So since your towers represent an incredibly powerful automatic line of defense, you always want to make sure that you're topped off on your wood in order to you know keep those towers firing and keep your defenses up. Yeah, and if they are not full, they then become vulnerable to attack from enemies. Right, and so... This leads us into arguably the most important aspect of the game, and that is enemy behavior. You know, if you think of any tower defense game, you've got your enemies that come into the lane from point A, they're trying to get to point B, and they have to move along the path in order to get there. So in this case, it's no different. Um, you have five different types of enemies, four if you don't include the final boss. You have witches who buff other enemies. You have archers whose goal is to try to kill your villagers. And then you have footmen and you have knights whose goal is to get to your village and raise the buildings there. And each of them moves in specific ways. They advance towards the shortest path to the village or to the nearest villager in the case of an archer um, following certain rules. You know, they move towards a villager first. They avoid blocked areas. There are things called peril spaces, which when stepped on by an enemy cause bad things to happen for the heroes. They'll prioritize those. And then finally, if they don't have anything else that they are interested in in their path, they move towards a character. And then once they're done, they make any attacks that they have, and then they're, you know, idle until the next enemy movement phase. So there's a lot of programming, you know, that goes into it. It's obviously not a programming game because we, the players, aren't, you know, deciding their actions and what they do, but we're responding to them. You know, we can say, all right, these are the parameters for enemy movement, which means since they're going to follow those steps to the letter, we have to make sure that we set up our defenses in such a way that they prioritize, you know, this character over this villager. Because, you know, the character's closer, he's in their way, and we have to make sure that the character absorbs the damage and that the villager doesn't die. So there's lots of sort of strategic concerns. Positioning is a huge part of this game and kind of managing around how the enemies behave is very, very important. Yeah, you have to almost try to lead them to a certain funnel so that you, you can either use the watchtowers or you know use the blockades, which you can also build, and pit traps and other things like that, that let you control and you know harm enemies or anything like that in order to keep them from getting to the village or killing the villagers, or even killing you, because there are three ways that you can lose the game. First way is that the three villagers die. Three out of the six de are dead, the campaign is lost. Second way is that if half of the characters rounded up die, then you lose the game. And the third way is if half of the structures in the village are destroyed. Actually, I'm pretty sure it's only three structures, regardless of how many structures you have, because the the size of the map and the number of village tiles does scale with players. So that's actually one thing that becomes even harder. You have a larger area to protect, but it's still only if three of them get raised, you lose the game. Yeah. So, so that's tough. those are the three ways that you can lose the game. And the only way to win is to survive 10 rounds and then defeat the sheriff. Right. And the sheriff is absolutely the most powerful type of enemy. He automatically destroys any pit trap that he steps on. He is able to freely destroy barricades and towers. He actually gets a chance to retaliate against any hero who attacks him, which makes it pretty tough to defend against him. He's got more health. He's just, you know, big bad boss. 
Yeah. So that's really appropriate, and he spawns at the end of the tenth round, and then the heroes just have to try to take him out. All the while, you know, other regular enemies are still spawning, they're still stepping on peril spaces, and there's also one of the other mechanics that empowers the enemies that we haven't talked about. It's called Doom. So the game takes place over a minimum of 11 rounds, and at the end of rounds 3, 6, and 9, you flip over a Doom card, which permanently alters how the game is played in little ways. So one Doom card might say that villagers can only accumulate two resources instead of three, or um, knights now get the opportunity to retaliate, because knights by default have two health, but they can't strike back, even if someone doesn't manage to finish them off. This changes that so that now they can strike back and anyone who hits them. So it just forces you to rethink some of the strategies that you've come up with on the fly. Exactly, exactly. And the peril cards are actually pretty similar, uh, and but these are effects that only uh, affect that one round. So they happen whenever an enemy steps on in peril space, so you have to be careful of those as well. And then they just go through and also give, let's say, knights an extra move or uh, something like that that will make it a little bit more difficult. Right. But so that's pretty much all the mechanics of the game. You know, you go through with your heroes, you manage your resources, you try to take out the enemies until the sheriff spawns and you take him out. So in terms of how those mechanics fit together, how they all sort of work, the first thing that I noticed, and this is extremely nitpicky of me, but as a nerd who enjoys tower defense games, this actually felt more like a hero siege to me um, because, you know, you can have between three and five lanes, depending on the number of players, but you can only ever build two towers, two barricades, and two pit traps at a time. So it's really more about what you do with your heroes and making sure that you're strategically positioned there. And then obviously tower placement is very, very important, but it's not going to be the same sort of thing that you think of where you have swarms of towers, you know, pinging people all along this long route. It's more about getting your hero into the right place. And along with that, it's actually different than most kind of tower defense games or anything like that i never felt the pressure of a, a tower defense game agreed and that was uh, something that like the enemies never survived till the next round unless we let them yeah we were definitely more than able to stay on top of the enemies and to stay on top of everything else that we were doing you know resource management making sure that people who needed their equipment had their equipment that sort of thing and we were even playing with the variant bounty system, which decreases the actions that you're allowed to take the more enemies you kill. Um, we were playing with that variant. We got to the point by the end of the game where one player wasn't even allowed to move villagers around the forest. He had to pay extra for stuff. He couldn't recharge his destiny token, which is another thing we didn't talk about that allows you to take either an extra move or an extra action. So we had all these penalties, and even still we really didn't feel pressured even after the sheriff spawned we were just like okay we one shot him yeah you know so there there was definitely a lack of difficulty there yeah and that is exacerbated by the fact that you know we were playing a three player game i never fired a shot i never killed anything i didn't even like get a weapon until like the last round of the game and that was just in case something bad happened so it was one of those things where you know, I don't know. The difficulty just didn't seem to work for me. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And I think, 
you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. On the one hand, the enemies just don't, there's not a lot of enemies that spawn, um, which I'm sure is by design because you don't want it to be overwhelming and impossible to defeat. But, you know, when you're only spawning three enemies per turn, two of them get taken out simultaneously by a tower, which means you have three heroes left to take out one enemy. You know, it's just kind of underwhelming. But then another part that I think really factored into that lack of difficulty is some of the shortcomings with the programming for the enemies. You know, the the rules that they follow are laid out pretty specifically, but there's also lots of contradictions, which is surprising. You know, it'll say that certain enemies have the ability to, for example, destroy a barricade, and they'll prioritize doing that. But then we don't know how that conflicts with, okay, if they're supposed to follow the shortest route, and that's their number one priority, if they can break through a barricade, does a route that would otherwise be the shortest, if there weren't a barricade there, still count as the shortest, even though a barricade is there? So it's lots of these sorts of questions that don't get answered by the rules because they're just simply not comprehensive enough. They don't answer questions about um, targeting, in the case, the question actually that you asked of the creators of the game on Twitter, and they answered was, you know, if a knight attacks a tower with a villager in it, does the villager die first and then the knight attacks the tower? Do they die simultaneously? Like, what's going on there? It's not addressed by the rules. Similar concerns with the sheriff. There's contradictory information. So a lot of this is open to interpretation. And even though I personally don't feel that we made any decisions regarding the rules that were overwhelmingly in our favor, you know, we didn't cheat. We, we read the rules as we fairly interpreted them those were still, you know, in a way that allowed it to be an easier game than I think maybe the creators were intending. Yeah, there, there were multiple cases of that. Uh, the That knight was the first one. There was an archer that, for example, could have gone in and killed one of our villagers, but technically the villager in the tower was closer, therefore he would have gone and prioritized that one. So it's those kinds of things where it's, I'm not sure what was the best way of doing it and we made certain decisions but at the same time we always had a devil's advocate who was thinking like oh wait no this like you know shouldn't we make it this way that's harder but then we would read the rules and there would be like no way of determining and i think that that's definitely one of the biggest shortfalls yeah absolutely so let's talk a little bit about more i guess about that because i mean we've talked about it in the game field part but no game is perfect and let's let's continue on a little bit one of the things, small thing, that was frustrating to me was the actual resource camps, which looked almost like tree tiles on the actual board, uh, which made it really hard to think about, oh, okay, they actually can move through these, and mm -hmm. we can move through these, and it just, it was a design choice that I didn't like. And yeah. that is something that was very simple that could have been changed to improve just the playability of the game. Agreed. There's also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, uh, we were playing with your roommate, and for whatever reason, he just had this huge mental block about the order of operations. He wouldn't accept that the upkeep actually happened at the end of the turn, not at the beginning of the turn, and that when we placed uh, what's called a beacon of hope on the board to mark the number, the turn number, that would happen at the end. So we'd place the third beacon, and it meant that we had finished the third turn, not that we were starting the third turn. And he just absolutely could not wrap his mind around that. So we've, it's something that we've mentioned before with some of these game design choices and these um, sort of playability choices. So from that perspective, you know, if, if there's people, veteran 
board gamers who are confused by this sort of thing maybe think about changing just even the way that something the time that something happens in a way that doesn't fundamentally change how the game is played just how it's presented yeah and all this and i actually when i thought think about this this really could have been pretty good game like i mean i totally can see a way of bringing tower defense to a board game and like having more of the building aspect there like actually making it more interesting and dynamic but it it seems that this game just really wasn't up to the challenge yeah it was it was a bit of a letdown so moving into you know final reviews i don't think it's a surprise to anyone at this point that i'm going to give it a skip it your roommate again is the one that we played with i think he said it perfectly in terms of inspiration concept eight out of ten great ideas in terms of execution, just failed to deliver. I completely agree. I'm going to also say the same. The concept is really interesting. I really want it to work, but the execution, the rules, and just the way it's been laid out, it really fell short of my expectations. And possibly we'll see. Uh, I'll try it again, and I want to see if there's going to be errata coming out when people send in more questions, and see if that improves the game, if there's going to be a little bit less time spent on the actual asking of the questions and trying to knock out like the rules and figure out what this sentence means compared to this other sentence. Because I think when we played, we literally took about as much time looking at the rules, trying to figure out how things worked, as we played the game. Oh yeah, for sure. So... Maybe if that all gets fixed up, it might get better. But for now, it's definitely a solid skip it from me. Agreed. Let's not end on a negative note, though. Let's talk about some other games that are similar to this that we think you might enjoy if you're really looking for that sort of you know, cooperative enemy-defeating experience. The first one we think is Zombicide. It has a lot of the same themes where you've got enemies that are going to spawn. They're going to follow you know, certain parameters as far as go here, make these attacks, and you even have a lot of the same concerns with regard to scaling up. You know, in Sherwoods, it's resource management, whereas in Zombicide, it's kind of personal character management, equipment, level abilities, that sort of thing. But it follows a lot of the same patterns. So if you're looking for kind of a a game where you're going to have to face waves of enemies while managing to level up your character and take care of your primary objective... Zombicide, specifically Black Plague, for sort of, you know, the the fantasy type of feel, is well worth checking out. And another game would be Ghost Stories. Uh, this is an infamous, almost, cooperative game, which uh, whose difficulty is right where I like it, meaning almost impossible to beat. <laughs> so this game, it's brutal, but it's also similar in that Everyone has a character that they move into the different lanes and enemies keep coming down these lanes. And when they get to the bottom, that's when they're like attacking and that kind of stuff. And you have to move your characters, have certain kind of tokens to block the the ghosts from getting to certain parts of the board and from, you know, destroying certain things. And so as you move around, you have this board, you're trying to defend it and you're trying to go in every single direction and save this area. And... In that, I think that this has the the movement down, the, the putting in the blockades, putting in these other things that, that keep uh, the enemies at bay. 
that really gives you that feel of being overwhelmed and trying to defend like this little last part that like you're just trying to hold out enough in order to get through this last thing. And they also have the bosses and other things like that, more difficult em enemies as you go on, and different enemies that have different abilities. So if that's what you're looking for, Ghost Stories is definitely a great one. And there you have it. That's our review of Sherwood's Legacy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Dragon's Demise. Be sure to head over to WashingtonCon.com to pick up your tickets for WashingtonCon, Washington area's premier board game convention. It's going to be a great lineup, lots of awesome panelists, plenty of opportunities to play board games, and of course, your favorite podcasting duo will be in attendance once again. So come by and see us, get a shirt, say hello. Also, if you haven't yet, be sure to check out our YouTube channel where we've got our blooper reel up. It's quite fun. Uh, you get to hear me say lots of bad words. So if that's something that you're into, check that out. And tune in next week when we'll be reviewing Mars Needs Mechanics. <laughs>